What are you waiting for? Welcome to This Is Not A Dress Rehearsal Podcast. Stop holding your breath, waiting for perfect conditions before you move through the world. Tune in for real stories of real people who understand the freedom to live well. Your host, Bonnie Sewell, is a veteran wealth manager with 12 grandchildren, helping clients over the last 30 years enjoy their wealth. You can listen to all podcasts at www.americancapitalplanning.com slash podcast or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we are speaking with Trish Serator and Ken Gross, an inspired pairing in the automotive world and in the real world. Trish started her career at Motor Age Magazine, an industry trade journal, as the business editor. While there, she wrote and edited business management and merchandising articles and created a specialty column for the collision repair industry. In 2010, Trish was named to Automotive News 100 Leading Women in the North American Auto Industry. In 2000, Axo Noble selected her as one of the most influential women in the collision repair industry. And in 1994, this is how long she's been an impact in the industry, Trish received the Automotive Hall of Fame's Young Leadership and Excellence Award for Outstanding Achievements in the Automotive Industry. She's a member of the International Motor Press Association. Today, A 31-year veteran of ASE and the number two corporate officer, Trish serves as the Senior Vice President of Communications Institute for the National Institute for ASE. Ken Gross, her husband, formerly Executive Director of the Peterson Automotive Museum in Los Angeles, Ken has served as the guest curator for 13 highly acclaimed exhibitions of automobiles and motorcycles in fine art museums nationwide. Ken has written 25 automotive books, most recently, Iconic Art Design, Advertising, and the Automobile, Concord Delegance, and the Lane Motor Museum, A Hobby Gone Wild. He also wrote Behind the Headlights, a Speed TV series. His publications include Collier Auto Media, Road and Track, Auto Week, Playboy, The Rob Report, Haggerty's Magazine, Sports Car Market, Forbes, The Rotter's Journal, Hot Rod Deluxe, Magneto, W.M. Brown, and Old Cars Weekly. Ken has been a North American Car of the Year juror since the award's inception, a member of ICJAG, the International Chief Judge Advisory Group. Ken has been a Pebble Beach Concord Delegates Chief Class Judge for 30 years. He serves on the Pebble Beach Selection Committee. He is the Chief Judge for the Greenwich Concord Delegates. Ken has received the Automotive Hall of Fame Distinguished Service Citation, the Lauren Tryon Trophy at the Pebble Beach Concord Delegates, and the Ken Purdy Award from the International Motor Press Association, the Dean Bachelor Lifetime Achievement Award, and from the Motor Press Guild in Los Angeles, and the Lee Iacocca Award. He serves on the advisory board of the American Hot Rod Foundation. Whew. Welcome, Trish and Ken. Thank you. Thanks. Nice We're happy to be, to be here. here. 
It's so nice to speak with both of you this morning. And and while those are long introductions and really reflect the important careers you've had in the automotive industry, I think so much of what is fascinating about your two stories is one, that you found each other, and two, that you operate in different spheres inside the automotive industry. And while we'll cover some of that today... What we really want to bring out in your stories is what you've achieved and what you can share with those listening. So a fundamental belief that we hold and one of our whys for doing this podcast is that by sharing our real stories, we learn from each other. We get to know each other and we bridge that distance between each other. And I would suspect that a lot of people's idea of the automotive industry may be challenged with this podcast as they learn about some exciting things to do in the automotive industry they may have been unaware of. But what story can you share, each of you, with our listeners about how you know that this, and I'm putting that in air quotes, this day, this life, is not a dress rehearsal? Trish, will you go first? Wow, I... I I've learned that over the years, it, it didn't come to me in a flash or anything. I think it was a long process of understanding that. It probably started when I met Ken and when we began our life together and we realized, you know, we want to make the most of it. We want to do the things we want to do. We want to explore the world. We want to have fun and enjoy our family. I think having kids also makes you realize this is not a dress rehearsal. <laughs> understanding that uh, these little people who grow up to be big people have an impact on the world and and you want to make sure that that is done well and and go forward and i think the one line that ken always tells me is um no one tells us that you get to do this twice so let's make sure the first go round is everything you want it to be i love that and ken what has your life experience shown you well, I, uh, I served as a naval officer for five years, and a year of that was in the Republic of Vietnam, where sadly, some of the people that I served with were killed, and some of my best friends lost their lives there. And it made me think that life is precious. We may not be able to realize what we want because the time can be cut off, and that it's very important if you're granted the privilege to have this life, to not waste a moment of it. Couldn't agree more. Can each of you give us the short version of where you started in life, whether it came from a wealthy family or a less wealthy family, the part of the country you grew up in, and sort of the expectations that you thought were put on you or that you received and where you are today? What we're really thinking about here is how one thing leads to another. Can you each of you expand on that a little bit? Well, uh, I grew up in a little town north of Boston in a family that was kind of second-generation Russian immigrants. My grandparents all came from Russia. Uh, everybody spoke Russian and, and Yiddish. We were encouraged to be good Americans, and so we, my brother and I did not have, we didn't learn some of the ethnic uh, elements that, that we could have learned. I was the first person in my family to go to college uh, at, at my generation. I did have an uncle who, who attended college. There was a lot of pressure to become a professional, and uh, although, and we'll talk about this later, I became fascinated with cars as a young kid. I couldn't think of any way that that would fit with my parents' plans for me. But I, I think that striving, and this is something that I guess immigrant families, it's important to them, was very important in our family. You were to become the best you could be. You were to become a professional in some way. And uh, that was true from childhood. It's never left me. 
Really interesting. Thank you. Trish? Um, actually, very similar. Um, I grew up in a small town outside Philadelphia. My parents were maybe second, third generation Italian-Irish. So very similar, you know, ethnicities in, in the sense that, you know, they were, you, you will do better. You will go to college. You will uh, make something of yourself. You will do better than, you know, your parents or your grandparents did. And so that was always the the striving Course. you know, you will you will go forward, you'll go to college and, and you'll have a great life. That also included having kids and a family and, you know, making sure that um, you came home for Sunday dinner and, and did all of that as well. So Ken and I actually, despite our disparity in ages and, and locations, uh, grew up, I believe, with very similar familial values and beliefs and determinations that you'll be successful and, and you'll carry that forward with your children and your family. That's really interesting, especially since it was a completely different country background. It's, so I, th- I think that's fascinating, but shared value is always so important. And Ken, from what I understand, your interest in car started as a teenager. Can you tell us how the Embers at that time grew to a full career spanning more than 50 years? Well, the short version is that uh, when I was 12 years old, my neighbor, Bruce Jerky, owned an MGTC, and I was fascinated by that car. He was kind enough to let me help him clean it and take me for a ride. I discovered my first issue of Road and Track in May 1954. It's hanging on the wall. And uh, I, I knew that I wanted to do something involving cars and probably involving magazines because I, I enjoyed writing from an early age. But I couldn't think of any way to do this practically. I went into advertising for a few years as a career, but began freelance writing about automobiles. A couple of people gave me an opportunity. By 1972, I was contributing to a number of uh, publications. And by 1984, I guess you could say, 85, I I quit my full-time professional marketing corner office big deal job and just freelanced full-time, and that expanded into uh, the career that I have today. And along the way, there was the museum piece, but I think we'll talk about that in one of your other questions. But I knew what I wanted to do. I just didn't know how to do it. But over time, I realized that I was putting in place some of the building blocks that I needed to be able to break away and do what I do full-time. Very cool. Trish, you are a distinguished executive in the automotive industry, which is still considered a male-dominated industry. And I'm curious, what led you to start down that path in the automotive industry? Maybe you weren't thinking about this as a teenager. Maybe you were. So after you share that story, I'm also interested in how you've overcome preconceived ideas. Because what people can't see in this podcast is you're a beautiful petite blonde, which may or may not help or hurt your, your industry experience. So if you talk about the early days and then how you overcame those. Uh, perhaps preconceived ideas. Sure. Well, unlike Ken, I, I never had a vision of what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And, and I, I think that many people don't have that kind of vision. So, But I was fortunate to fall into some wonderful experiences. I graduated college with an English degree and knew I didn't want to teach. So it doesn't leave a lot of options at that point. But I had the opportunity to intern at uh, Chilton Company, which at the time was one of the largest publishing companies of trade journals. And the individual who's running the program was the editor-in-chief of Motor Age magazine. And he said, well, you're a girl and you don't know anything about cars. Come work for me and you can learn about them and learn about the industry. And I thought, great, I just bought my first new car. I don't know anything about it. It seems like a, a good deal. And from there, you know, I was off to the races. 
and I'm on the service side of the business to be clear, different from Ken's work on new car information. So service is a whole different world. And four years writing for the magazine and understanding businesses and how they operate and, and how intricate it is for automotive service repair was just very rewarding. From there, I jumped to an ad agency uh, that did business to business within the service world and realized that I wanted to be the client and not the agency. And fortunately, was recruited to come to work for ASE, the National Institute for Automotive Service Excellence, way back in 1988 and have been there ever since. ASE is a nonprofit organization that certifies automotive service and repair technicians. So that has been satisfying from the sense that I feel that I'm giving back in addition to working within the industry and providing the industry an opportunity to showcase their quality work, their ethical business practices, and their ability to take care of their customers. So that has certainly resonated with me as being a positive thing to be doing for my life's work and being part of the automotive industry. In terms of Preconceived notions, yes, the, the automotive service world is difficult. It's it's male-dominated. It's complicated. I would say that it has changed a lot in 30 years, thank goodness. The snap-on bikini calendars are down. and <laughs> <laughs> So that's made it a lot easier to walk into repair facilities and feel like I'm not, you know, I don't have to cover my eyes or I don't couldn't bring my mother in there. I would say that I went into the industry with an open mind, so I, I didn't really feel... And I had some really great mentors, so I really didn't feel as if I was being talked down to or discriminated against or feeling, you know, that people didn't think I was competent. However, I wasn't actually fixing a car, so that does make a difference in terms of that. And I have to say that there are a lot more women in our side of the business today than there ever were back then, so it's made it a lot easier to move forward I just think you have to be comfortable in your own skin. You have to be positive. You have to be willing to ask questions and not feel as if you're stupid just because you don't understand something. And I have to say it's been a positive and wonderful experience. I think part of the reason she succeeded is because she's very good at what she does and she works hard at it. So people had to take her seriously. Yeah, I think that's got to be true, right? Otherwise, you don't last that long. There has to be substance behind whatever spark walks in the door. And I think that Trish has also shared the qualities that make any career successful, staying curious, keeping an open mind, asking for more to do. So I, I, I completely agree that in the end, it's always substance for a long career, a long successful career. And it's really helpful to know and good to hear that the industry has morphed and evolved, but also that There were days where it may have been difficult, and you said, that's okay, I'm going to do it anyway. So I I, I love that outlook, and it obviously served you quite well. You have two adult children together, Kayla and Jake, and they're at the beginning of their careers. They're young adults, and plenty of our listeners are either early in their careers as well, or they have adult children like yourselves starting out. For each of you, were there setbacks or detours in your career? Because it's going to happen, right? Your children and and my own children who are a little older will work 50 to 55 years easily, and they're going to experience detours. So can you talk a little bit about setbacks or detours? and and how you navigated those? Well, having children entails a certain level of responsibility. And my way of dealing with it has always been to try to set the best example possible 
if you work hard and show your kids that you do it honorably and industriously, that's a great example for them to follow. And the other side of this is that you've got a couple of blank slates here in the beginning. And as long as you're not trying them to get them to do what you're doing or what you're thinking and acknowledge that they have a direction that they want to do, there's a Mark Twain quote that says, try to understand what your children want to do and help them do it. I had to overcome. I don't blame my parents for this. They were wonderful people, but they had a preconceived notion that my brother would be a doctor and I would be a lawyer. Well, they got the doctor but they didn't get the lawyer. It's not what I wanted to do, but it took me a long time to kind of get out from what I thought they wanted me to do and what people wanted me to do and what I wanted to do. So with our children, I think Trish and I both have tried to understand what they're interested in. It, it wasn't difficult because they, they, uh, they're very clear about what they like and then support them in every way we could. Trish, would you add something to that? From a setback, position. I've been very fortunate in my career. I've been able to move forward with very little issues short of the age-old women making less than men situation where, you know, you have to be proactive. And there was a situation where I found out I was not making equal to a colleague. And, and you know, you have to speak up. You have to ask the question. And with Ken's, you know, role-playing and, and help, we, you know, I, I, I went ahead and did that. And, and I think while that was probably not a situation that I shared with our kids, I think we've always told our kids that they need to be assertive where appropriate and be sure that they're being understood for the qualities that they bring to the job and speak up for themselves and be advocates for themselves because nobody else will be. And I think that's that's an important lesson that I think they probably have taken, again, as Ken said, by observation without necessarily us saying it verbally. That's Great advice. And Ken, something you said leads us to our next question. The question is, would you recommend the automotive industry to others? And because like every industry, it seems to be changing at the speed of light. But I'm particularly interested in both of your views on if you're excited for the industry, because there's actually some headlines out there that say the, the peak of the auto industry for the peak of cars for the U.S. was three years ago. So what's your take? You're, you live and breathe this. Well, I often think that Trish is much more in the automotive industry than I am, although one of the components of what I do is to drive and test new cars. So I, I certainly am involved with the industry, per se, as the people who are building new uh, new cars and trucks. And we're seeing some interesting trends in that automobiles are becoming more and more autonomous and electric, if you, uh, if you will. And I kind of lament that myself. I'm a very analog person. I still like carburetors and not fuel injection. But the automobile is, is, to my mind, is the most important invention of the last century. And we still have a human need for independent transportation. It's just not going to look the way it has. I mean, the internal combustion engine is probably on its on its way out. But, uh, you know, you can look at cars like a Tesla and see that, a modern interpretation of how the how the car propels itself and what it does, even though I think it's more of a computer on wheels than an automobile, is the way things are going to go. I, I don't see that we'll stop having the opportunity for independent transportation. Whether these cars will be as interesting and fascinating as the cars uh, of, the, of the past, which I happen to, to be very interested in, will be conjecture. But I don't think the car is going to go away, certainly in our lifetimes. 
Thanks, Ken. Trish? There are so many cars on the road today that the opportunities to work on them and be involved in them and uh, be in the industry is, is excellent. If you're looking for a career in the automotive world, there's so many opportunities from being a service repair technician to working at a parts store to being an automotive writer like Ken uh, transitioned to in his career. And so I'm excited to see the industry continue. I think I agree with Ken's point, what it looks like 30 years from now might be very different than what it is today. But I think given the population and people still living out in the suburbs and the lack of public transportation in those areas require us to have independent transportation and it always breaks. And so there's going to be somebody who has to fix it and that requires uh, technical knowledge. And that's good for the country to have those kinds of careers that might not require a four-year college degree, but certainly require and, and understand the complexity of its technology. That's interesting. And I know from your travels that your careers have taken you to some fabulous locations around the world. Do you have a favorite place that your work has taken you? And has it been challenging to have travel so impacted? We're recording this in the September of the year of the pandemic. Has that been impactful? Well, from a business perspective, yes, no travel, which has been interesting, uh, you know, working at home, uh, having an office in my house as opposed to going to the office every day and frankly being on an airplane at least every other week has, has certainly been very different for us. I kind of like working at home, so I'm, no complaints there. As, and I think probably we'll see change in how people work in general post this pandemic. I think certainly my organization is going to be much more open to remote working and, and or some kind of hybrid situation. I miss travel in the sense that Ken and I both enjoy new places and new good food and, you know, making new friends in, in different locations. So we are anxious for that part of it to come back. If we had to say a favorite place, I think um, Italy and France and, and Europe would, would certainly rise to the top. But there's so many places I haven't been that um, hopefully when this is over, we'll get a chance to go back out on the road again. Anything you would add, Ken? Well, for me, uh, the work component hasn't changed very much because uh, when, I'm, when I wasn't traveling, I was sitting in my office, which is really a library, uh, in front of a computer working. So that element hasn't changed. Someone moved into the office next door, and I'm still surprised to see uh, Trish at home some days. She'll be tripping up the stairs, and I'll think, what's she doing home? I'm not quite used to that yet, but I miss the travel as well. My travel took me to a lot of interesting places. The European car companies like to test cars in uh, overseas. The American car companies pick interesting locations around the country, great roads and so forth. So I, I miss that. They bring the cars to us so we get to drive on our own uh, roads. But uh, I haven't been on an airplane uh, like most people since March, and it, it does seem very uh, very odd, but we're adapting. You know, we're all adapting to this, and and that's that's what you do. Where the life, Chris likes to often use that idea that if life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. And I think that travel will come back eventually. We will go to some of the. I've been to sixty countries. A lot of them I'd love to go with Trish, and we'll have a chance to do that. In the meantime, we're making the best of being home, which includes all those projects that hadn't gotten done. We're changing some house elements. We're fixing the uh, our garden outside. I to get my library organized and Trish is helping with that. So it's making the, it's like anything else in life. It's like recognizing things have changed and okay, how do I deal with this today? And how do I make the best of it? 
without looking totally in the rearview mirror, to use an automotive analogy. And I certainly don't miss the um, ODARC 100 wake-up calls to catch that 8 o'clock airplane. So that part's uh, uh, long gone. <laughs> yeah, and thanks. In, in general, we're hearing the same thing from everyone in terms of a little bit of shifting priorities, a real appreciation for more time back as they figure out what to do with that time and how to spend it. I think that early on, people put off projects thinking this would be short-term. And now that we understand it's longer-term, I think people are really getting into the groove. of this. So I think that you're right with what we're hearing from a lot of people. Switching gears a bit, Ken, you were divorced prior to meeting the love of your life in Trish. And as you know, we do a lot of work in divorce finance. And many people get truly, truly overwhelmed in the period before the divorce settles. So with your both of your concepts about turning lemons into lemonade, how did you get through that period with a busy career? Because you were working then in, in all the things that you've done and matching accomplishments, but you also had two sons. How's everybody doing today and how'd you get through that period? What can you share with others that are stuck there right now? Well, the main thing in terms of raising two children as a single parent, which I, in essence, did that twice, was to have help and support. And we had, uh, I had a really great person as a nanny when we lived in Australia and a, um, a teacher who worked with my children after school every day when we came back to the United States. So, And then when Trish and I uh, had our first child, Jake, we found a wonderful woman from the Philippines who was their nanny their entire life. So you have to look. I think if you possibly can, you've got to look for good support because you cannot do it yourself. Uh, in terms of the whole divorce process, my advice is try to settle reasonably as quickly and rationally as you can. Recognize that it's never going to totally go away. So to to keep some modicum of respectability and for, uh, for one another so that you can at least communicate, particularly when children are involved, is very, very important. It's not all about the money. It's really about, okay, how do, you, how do we resolve this and move on? That's the most Im Im important part to, uh, to me. Did I answer all, all of that? I don't know if I... You did. You did. And to me, that advice is what we tell people a lot. And so hearing it from another source is truly appreciated because if the marriage is not going to go forward, then you have a responsibility to yourself and to your, the rest of your family to conclude the matter as reasonably as possible. I couldn't have said it better. So thank you for sharing that. Trish, did you uh, meet Ken through your work in the industry? And, and then also I'm interested in how were you able to juggle so you, sort of the other side of that question Ken just answered about working, having a successful career, having kids, and being married to somebody else who is also busy and travels in their work. Uh, Ken and I met on the road. He had just started freelancing, and I was working at the magazine, and we were at a Mitsubishi Montero press introduction in Mystic Seaport, Connecticut. So we always have a, a soft spot in our heart for Mitsubishi for bringing us together. Ken was living in Princeton, and I was in Philadelphia. So we had our relationship, and then we had a bit of a long-distance relationship when I moved to Virginia for ASE, and and then you know got married, and and then the kids. And Ken said it right; it, it's all about support. You know, we had the kids, and we were both traveling, and they were little, and we were moving California and back to Virginia, and, and without Lolly, our nanny, it would have been impossible to do any of that. Now we were fortunate to have the financial wherewithal to, to have her and to have her for as long as we did. But we also had my parents. 
who were a great support and, you know, flew out or came down at, to stay with the kids from a family situation. We also used the support within our community. When the kids were old enough, we used the after-school program at the at our public schools here in Hamilton, Virginia. And and it was awesome. You know, the kids got to play and read and do and came home with their homework done. And, you know, so that made life life a little easier. I think, too, our kids, we always traveled. So, you know, the kids weren't, they didn't know differently when mom and dad weren't home because Lolly was there, Nana up board there. So, you know, from their perspective, this was the way everybody lived. And so they, they didn't know any differently. And they were always glad to see us when we came back, but they, they never cried when we left either. So <laughs> I guess that's a good thing. Well, when I go to a, um, a major convention every year in Las Vegas, and it almost always falls on Halloween. And I used to joke that Halloween from our kids' perspective was when Nana and Pop came down to stay with them Mom and dad went away and all the neighbors gave you candy. <laughs> that was their reality right. in, uh, in that regard. But another thing I would like to add to this is that Rich and I have a kind of a, of a seamlessly integrated mutual support system. We can finish each other's sentences. Uh, when, whether it's cooking or cleaning or organizing or getting ready for anything, we really work together without even having to communicate. We support one another, and we, we both think that that's really important without articulating it necessarily, but it's, I mean, I'm always thinking, what does she need? What what has to happen here? Uh, we don't have a, that's his chore, that's her chore type thing, and that, that works really well for us, I think. My job allowed me to be more flexible in terms of being able to stay home, not travel when Ken was traveling, where his was a little bit more, you know, this is the job, you have to go, so... It was helpful to have the, those kinds of employment opportunities to make it all work. Well, thanks for sharing those details, because I think there's a lot of younger people, a little older than your own children that, well, or your own adult kids that are having their own kids and are really stuck in this particular time period. So I know that they'll appreciate hearing that others have been here before. There was a way they handled it. And I agree with you. Resources matter. It's wonderful to have the help. It's wonderful to be able to pay for the help. Family matters too. So thanks for sharing those details, because there's a lot of folks in that position today. One reason I have been looking forward to sharing the tour of your stories is because I think that both of you really live life with gusto and everyone gets bumped around in life. And you've talked about making lemonade out of lemons. And I'm curious, how have you managed to stay curious and open to new people, places and experiences, especially because this is probably not the last time we're all going to get bumped around? Well, I've been fascinated with automobiles since, as I mentioned, since I was 12 years old. I've amassed a pretty enormous library. I have an insatiable curiosity. Trish has commented from time to time, you know, you still get excited over seeing this car or finding that book. And yes, I, I do. It's never lost its fascination for me. So I guess I'd have to say I'm very lucky that I have an interest that has never let me down. It's something that I'm always interested in. I mean, my biggest regret in life, you could probably write it on my tombstone, is he didn't get to read all of his books, but he sure <laughs> tried, you know. And so in that regard, I like to say find something that you like, that you love, because it will reward you every day. It really will. And for those of us who don't have that specific 
reward mechanism. (laughs) You want to find somebody who does so you can share it with them or her. (laughs) That's great. But I think because we we also both traveled, we were fortunate to have jobs that allowed us to get out in the world and and meet people. And, you know, you always learn something new when you meet somebody new and, and go to a new place and have a new experience. And that continues to I think, keep us going and and keep us interested in what we're doing. You know, I am way past the normal retirement age. And people now look look at me in any context. It happens all the time. I've stopped getting annoyed about it. They say, (laughs) when did you retire or do you enjoy your retirement? And uh, I always remember the words that are attributed to Duke Ellington, where someone asked him about retirement and he said, retirement, retire to what? And and I I mean I think if you love what you do, why would you ever want to stop doing it? And the nice thing about being a writer is that you can do it indefinitely, kind of like being an actor. There there are many things that you can do your entire life, and uh, and you just get better at it. I, I think that's true for my job too, and so I hope you won't mind if I stay till I'm a hundred. That'll be great. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, changing gears again, we think most conversations have an element attached to money. Some people meeting you both today will see a very successful life on a material front too. But I'd love for you to share how you learned about money growing up, how you talked about money with your children as they were growing up, and if you think you have to quote be rich close quote to enjoy life. Trish should answer that first because she's the money. Man- <laughs> she's the money manager. Right uh, yeah, you know, growing up, you know, my mother was a homemaker and my father worked, so the whole deal was you will go to college, you'll get a good job, and and you will make good money. And and just from a, you know, my dad got paid once a month, and boy, that was tough managing. You know, my mother, I give her a lot of credit for managing to feed us for an entire month and do all the other extracurricular and other stuff. Uh, you know, on, on that salary at that frequency. So that, that kind of showed me that you can do it. Um, it's hard, but you got to be diligent about it and saving, you know, saving was a big thing for my, you know, my dad telling me and, you know, and, and responsibility having to pay part of my college education and, and understand that nothing's free. So that, that's kind of the philosophy that I bring to our marriage and, and have taken on the responsibility for helping us have, um, good financial health. Yeah, Trisha, Trisha is always the treasurer in any organization, <laughs> which uh, is is fine with me because I know how and I enjoy making money. But I'm uh, I'm not a very uh, effective money manager at an early age, and I, I think I can date this. Well, I grew up in a in a family where we weren't poor, but we were hardly wealthy. My parents saved. They encouraged us to save. I remember our bank books and, and so forth. Save something of everything you earn was was very important. Don't live above your means. Trish and I have always tried to do that and not be in, in debt and so forth. I remember in college, someone saying to me, there'll be people who have boundless wealth, and you'll see it. They're the ones driving Porsches and Austin Healy's. I put it in automotive terms. And there'll be plenty of people who don't have what you have, and you'll be somewhere on that scale. You know, know where you are and don't try to live beyond your means. And I think we we do that too. Uh, Trish acts as both check and balance. 
in, <laughs> in in our relationship that way. But I think we're both very careful not not to just go crazy with mm-hmm. things. It's easy to look around and perhaps be envious of other people. But when you stop and look at your own situation, as we have, we feel very, very fortunate. And yes. loving where you are and who you're with is really an important way to go through life. I'm not sure that we ever formally spoke about money to our kids. We did not do the, you know, give them money every week, spending money or whatever. They had chores, they had, a, you know, things they had to do every week. So, but that was part of being a good citizen of the home. There was no monetary uh, reward for that. Our kids are fortunate. Um, we were able to save and, and they are starting their life with uh, no debt, which is amazing for children today. So that's really putting them on some solid financial footing. And now that they've been on their own, they've been really amazing. They they understand the value of a dollar and, and they appreciate that they don't have everything everybody else has, but they have what they need to live. And we've been able to wear appropriate support that without overdoing it where, you know, we didn't give our kids BMWs to drive to high school in. That that wasn't part of the, the financial plan from our perspective. <laughs> <laughs> I would add to that that setting an example in mm-hmm. in money and in everything, do what you would want your kids to do. Make them proud of you and, and set the example. Don't be hypocritical about anything. And money is certainly part of that. Well, and, and understanding the right things to spend your money on. Yes, you can have a lot of toys, but isn't it more fun to go somewhere as a family and enjoy an experience? And so we tried to put our emphasis on those mm-hmm. kinds of activities as opposed to having every bell and whistle in the house that, you know, you could have. I don't think Jake got a Game Boy or a console until, you know, he could pay half of it. So I'll add one more thing to that, too. And that's that as soon as we could do this with our kids, we had dinners together. That was the only time of the day. I mean, breakfast, everyone's running in different directions. But we really sat down to dinner and we tried to let them tell us about their day and what they were doing and ask questions. I mean, something I miss that they're not here anymore in their own lives. But I think it was very important because it also gave us a chance to occasionally impart some life lesson based on something that they were were going through. I've told that to several people who've told me that they do that (laughs) (laughs) with, with their kids and they found it very rewarding. Yeah, I think that's a big gem. The idea that rather than speak from the head of the table, telling them about things you heard from them first, and then help them understand and digest that. And then, Trish, you had a gem as well. The idea of being a citizen of the home. That's a beautiful way to say everybody has responsibilities just by virtue of being in the home. I I love that. We, We said that to our kids. I mean, that was a concept. If somebody strayed from the straight and narrow, we would say, you know, being a good citizen of the home means that at least once a week, you know, you clean your room or you do <laughs> this or that. And and so they, they just grew up thinking that's the way everyone did it. Well, so you've you said this a couple of times, too, and I think this is so key for parents who are really struggling in a very busy environment. Children don't know any different than what you teach them. So this old thing of children learn what they live. If you tell them to do certain things, they don't know different. And so you tell them to do the right things, they're going to do the right things because they don't know different. I love that idea. Thank you. So uh, attaching cars back to money, I think of a car as a utility. So I drive an inexpensive car. My husband, who raised a whole bunch of children in prior lives, always had a a 
crummy car because he was frugal that way, but he loves cars and uh, today prefers much more expensive cars for driving. And I have a client who purchased a beautiful car that he'd lusted after for some time. He's a younger single guy, but he drove it to Delaware to meet a friend one day for lunch. And while he was in the restaurant, somebody keyed the car. And when he told me about this, I mean, I thought a family member had been scandalized. I didn't realize he was talking about a car at first. And he said, you know, I can't even look at her. So as car people, how do you think about cars? And then how do you think about cars to drive around from point A to B? Well, we like to drive, both of us, and we like going on on trips. And where cars are concerned, honestly, we're very lucky because we have a new car to drive each week. It's not necessarily the car that we would select. I mean, sometimes it's an economy sedan, sometimes it's a luxury SUV and so forth. So we can be very practical about our personal cars. Trish has a, a 2005 model. Mine is a 2010. We maintain them meticulously so that they will last a long, long time. If we're going to spend money on cars, as we have a garage full of old cars, that's where we'll spend it and not necessarily on on everyday transportation. And for us, and most recently, we bought a, a vintage car for, for Trish. Old cars have afforded us an opportunity to meet some wonderful people, many of whom have become our best friends. They've taken us to exotic places all around the world to go to car events. They're a, a real source of joy because, as I, li- I like to say to Trish now in her new, new old car, these cars need us. You know, they're not automatic. They don't immediately go to idle. They don't stop the way old cars do. A good deal of thinking is involved. So you become very much one with the car. That's really enjoyable. You're you're making it all happen. You're shifting and your throttle control and, and so on and so forth. So I think I know I derive a lot of pleasure from mastering that. And I can see that Trish is enjoying it in her in her car as well. I I will say, though, that I'm a little bit more like you, Bonnie, in the utilitarian sense of the word. You know, for me, my car is, you know, I go to the store in it, I go to work in it, you know, I pick up family members in it, whatever. So, you know, there's that part of the car world in my mind that's, you know, A to B, you know, get the job done, do the chores. And and then for Ken, it's so much more about the experience, the driving, the, the shifting, the, you know, the way it looks and all of that. So I'm just... I'm a little lower on the rung there of, of, of that level of understanding and, and all. But by osmosis, I'm getting there. So, <laughs> so one area I would add to that, that I've been fortunate over the years to have owned really exotic cars, two Ferraris, a Lamborghini. And that experience might convince people who are not car enthusiasts that one of those cars is so out there in terms of the experience that you might think, yeah, I kind of get it why people are fascinated with these cars. They're impractical and you have to use them for certain purposes. You don't go to the store necessarily, although you could. And you develop an appreciation for that. I also know that you can't keep everything forever. Some cars I've had to sell, but I've all, I always have that experience. And uh, whether I wrote about it and continue to think about it, or just sometimes in a pleasant moment, have a, a fond memory of, uh, of one of these cars, they're always, they're always there. You never lose them. 
So that said, it's funny because I have the fondest memories of my own grandfather picking me up for milkshakes. He had a Jaguar with a mahogany dash and a push button start. And that was so different from my mother's Volkswagen. And we had, we are a one car family and my, my husband grew up in a no car family. So I do appreciate these fascinating automobiles. My uncle Ken had a Lotus. So there was a part of the family that was really into cars. And I think I understand that fascination with beautiful cars and some cars do cost serious money, but you guys are collectors. So what have you owned and why was it special for you? Well, I'm going to default to Ken here because all of my cars have just been, you know, utilitarian until now. Until now. Until now. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, I owned a, two, a Ferrari 275 GTB, which I bought in 1981 for not much less than I'd paid for my first house. A few years before that. And I said to the fellow Ferrari broker that I bought it from, you know, this is a huge amount of money. Is there anything that could change? I mean, are these things going to plummet in value and so on and so forth? And I said, what what could cause the value of this car to go down? And I'll never forget, he, he said, nothing short of an entire social collapse. <laughs> well, basically right. The car became a seven-figure automobile. I, and I like to joke that when, I, when your car is worth telephone numbers, you know, maybe a little bit of the joy goes away because it's so, mm-hmm. it's so valuable. But that car, that Ferrari, and subsequently a Lamborghini that I had, they were really exciting to drive. Whether it was just getting into it, listening to a 12-cylinder engine, which is highly impractical in terms <laughs> of gas mileage and so forth, but thrilling. Absolutely thrilling. And what was still cool about those cars, and I remember going for a ride in, my, in our Lamborghini with Trisha's father, and it just stopped one day <laughs> on the side of the road. And I got out and within a few minutes was able to figure out an electrical connection that it needed. Trisha's dad thought I was some kind of a miracle mechanic. <laughs> as complex as today's cars are, many of the cars in that era are not as complicated. But again, to me, it's just, it's the excitement. I mean, I can still remember riding in Mr. Durkee's MG when I was 12 years old. And it's just been one great long ride in fabulous cars ever since. Murray recently uh, disposed of an MG because I, I value my life. And uh, I, I felt like every time we were on a country road, uh, the way people drive in the Northern Virginia area, they're quite distracted. That would be the end of us. But I, I know there's a whole MG thing out there too. And, and you have really owned some spectacular cars, Ken. But you recently picked up another special car, and this one is for Trish. Can you tell us about it? So we have three hot rods in the garage right now. And actually, the rule was if you buy something, you have to sell something. But we've kind of walked away from that a little bit. But, we, but I decided that I needed a car, right, that I needed something that I could have and enjoy um, as much as Ken enjoys the hot rods. And somehow we settled on this uh, very lovely Porsche model, a 356 B. And Ken, inevitably style, researched and went through all of the automotive websites and Hemmings and every opportunity to find the best car. And we did back in June. And it's blue and it's gorgeous. And we've just been having a lot of fun. And I'm learning to um, downshift and take the corners appropriately in the car. And and we're just having a blast. And, And it's different from the hot rod. So that's kind of fun, too, that it's not... Uh, the same vintage or the like. So, well, I owned the exact car, an exact duplicate of this car, in 1965, and uh, I bought it because when I was in college, 
a lot of the guys I thought were fairly cool were driving these uh, Porsches. I, and so as soon as I got out of graduate school, I bought a used one and the exact same model and then sold it when I went into uh, to the Navy. And so it wasn't hard to pick up because I, I know a bit about Porsches, but we had fun just finding it was yeah. fun. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, today it's very different, you have, particularly with the pandemic. I mean, you we had people look at several cars for us. I have a mixed record on buying sight unseen. Sometimes, <laughs> it's, sometimes it's, oh my God, if I just looked at this car, I never would, never would have bought it. And Trisha's car, we, we, through a friend of a friend, we were able to get a very reliable fellow who knew something about Porsches to look at it. And it was exactly as it's been described. And it's just a little doll of a, of a car. And I remembered why I like these Porsches so much when we drive it. And I'm very proud of Trish because this is unlike any car that she's ever had. And uh, like as she does with most things, she just got in it. And I mean, <laughs> I mean the famous family story about, about Trish is that when she bought her first new car, which was a Mazda 626, she drove it home from the dealership. Well, that doesn't sound like such a big accomplishment until you realize she'd never driven a stick shift car before. And by oh, wow. at home, she didn't abuse it. We drove that car well over 100,000 miles and never put a clutch in it. Yep. So, uh, <laughs> well, I should have, so we should wish I should have such good luck with a Porsche. <laughs> well, I, no, you will because you, you're, you're doing very well with it. You just have to have a, with an old car, just have to have a whole different set of assumptions. And Jay Leno likes to say, I like cars that need me. And old cars <laughs> a little bit. Uh, they need you to, they need your input, but they'll reward you with some great feelings. And to your point earlier, earlier about old cars. We tend to drive on back roads and in places I think is safe. Our first date was on my motorcycle. We don't ride a motorcycle anymore. I love them. I still will always love them. But unfortunately, and you have to worry about this with old cars too, with people on cell phones and uh, and distracted in other ways, you have to be doubly careful on any vehicle that doesn't have some of the safety elements. That Having been said, it's still a lot of fun. And I'm, I'm delighted watching Trisha's uh, joy in this car. <laughs> so a couple of questions. Uh, thanks for sharing all of that, Ken. A couple of questions come to mind. One, Trish, you are still learning the car, so maybe this isn't happening completely yet. But Ken has touched on the feel, the personality of the car and how it and his reflection that a car could need you. Or I guess that was Jay Leno's reflection. But the point being, are you starting to feel that? And my second question is, does he, you know, threaten to actually drive the car more than you do? Or do you actually get to drive the car quite a bit? Yes, I'm starting to get the feel of it. It, you know, as Ken said, it is very different from today's car. So, you know, having to manage the braking system is different and the, you know, the clutch and all of that. And it's just very different. So yeah, it's a learning curve. Absolutely. But it's an enjoyable learning curve. And it's great because I've got my co-pilot there to help me, you know, when I'm, you know, not quite sure what gear I should be in, in a particular stretch of road. So that makes it all the easier to manage. So, so yes, it's very exciting. It's also, yes, as, as you pointed out, it's, it's a little, yeah, Ken's sitting next to me and I have to make sure I get that, that gear shift correct. So yeah, there's a little bit of that. You've taken out. (laughs) Not yet. No, with Jake. Oh, with Jake I did. Yeah. So I've taken it out by myself and, and there's a little bit more relaxation with that (laughs) for the moment until I'm totally comfortable but Ken's also taken it out too, and and so yeah, we share the car. <laughs> yeah, we really do totally yeah. share. Yeah. Uh, any yeah. any ride is both people driving, and yep. uh, yeah. and I, I actually 
try to have yeah. Trish drive drive it more even. So she really feels it's her car. Back in the 60s, these were an everyday driver. I mean, mm-hmm. you bought one of these cars, and it wasn't something you just drove on weekends. When I owned mine, it was my everyday car. So you yeah. kind of have to think in those uh, in those terms. Sure. Well, hopefully someday I'll, I'll see you at a winery with the car or I'll see it parked in my driveway. I, I look forward to physically seeing the car someday. As we wrap up here, Trish, what would a well-lived life look like for you when you get a little ahead in years? Well, I think it's all about family first. I obviously want to continue to have this most wonderful personal relationship I have with Ken and make sure that that goes on and on and on and on. I want to be sure that our kids are established and have their own families and careers and likes and hobbies and interests that they share with others and with us. Obviously, to have our health, I think that's key. You know, we want to be sure that we can go forward knowing that we're you know, have the best health possible. I think I want to be sure that I don't lose that curiosity and that interest and everything we talked about earlier. I want to be sure that if and when I do stop a formal work plan, that there is something that engages me so that I'm not, you know, sitting on the couch, binge watching some Netflix all day. That would (laughs) not be a well-lived life for me. So I want to be sure that all that's included. But I think health and family and activities that are engaging. Thanks. And Ken, what would a well-lived life look like for you? It looks like life right now. Yeah. Uh, you know, honestly, um, uh, the only thing that could possibly change, and I agree with everything Trish said, is, I mean, if we somehow hit the lottery and we don't play the lottery, <laughs> it might mean a vacation home or a 12-cylinder car, but I don't think you should ever be content. I think content, not that there's anything the matter with that, but I, I love where we are right now in this moment. We worked hard to get here, and we work hard to stay here. I just, I guess the thing, and we talked a little bit about some of what we would say to you with your questions, is that we both feel you get up every day and you, you really try to do your best and maybe take an extra step than you took before. Uh, meet obligations, get things done, and get on to the to the next ones. And uh, I get I derive a lot of energy in finishing a, a project, uh, finishing a story for that I'm writing. And sometimes when it's done, there's this momentary letdown. Oh, now what? Well, now what? There's there's other things to do, and and I'll I'll do them. I I hope I always have the opportunity. People have, friends of mine who are writers have often said, oh, you know, the things aren't so good these days. This magazine is closing. That thing is going away. And I've never let that stop me. I mean, I've been able to segue into curating exhibits for automobile museums, working as a consultant for someone looking for a car, working for uh, events and taking what knowledge I've been able to learn over the years and help them do a better event. So to me, there's always opportunity. One thing slow, Trish likes to say, one uh, one door closes and other opens. That's absolutely true, uh, I think. So uh, be ready to reinvent yourself or at least change elements so that every day is an exciting opportunity. Well, that's a beautiful place to stop our conversation today, and I look forward to future conversations. I want to thank both of you, Trish and Ken, for your time, your insights, sharing your heart and your wisdom. We wish you both continued happiness, health, and success. Thank you, Bonnie. This podcast and any related material is provided for general information and entertainment purposes only and do not constitute accounting, legal, tax, investment, or other professional advice. For professional advice in any realm, 
contact the appropriate professional. We assume no representation or warranty, express or implied, for accuracy or completeness of content. We assume no responsibility for information contained in the podcast and disclaim all liability in respect of such information, but not limited to any liability for errors, inaccuracies, omissions, or misleading or defamatory statements. Links to external websites are provided solely for your convenience. We accept no responsibility for any linked sites or their contents. Use of this podcast and its content constitutes an explicit understanding and acceptance of the terms of this disclaimer.